Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 333, Dreaming of a Golden Age. Just a quick note to kick off, because I have been made aware that I am causing pain with my use of the pronunciation of the word junto. And I suspect there are a load of you out there, not on the Facebook group where we discussed this, who are probably wincing every time I say it. Because I understand that the Spanish would probably say something like junta, or more likely junta, though don't quote me on all of that. However, I am using the English pronunciation advisedly, according to various dictionaries, OED, Collins, Merriam-Webster, on the basis that the word being used is a loan word. It is a derivative of the Spanish, but also from the Latin to join, and actually the C in junctum stayed in as juncto in English for most of the 17th century. Anyway, junto it is, unfortunately. I hope you can all live with it. I must admit, actually, while we're on it, that I get embarrassed when my fellow Brits get high-horsey about the English pronunciation of things and places. You often see it online. I mean, unless you're born here, how on earth are you supposed to deal with words like toaster, kikubri, and what I'm going to cop out by calling chlanfer pg? It should all be a bit of fun. No one means to insult anyone. On the other hand, we could all be like the Norwegians, Danes, Swedes and Dutch, who I suspect have perfect pronunciation for every language in the world. They certainly do for English. But then, we've always realised they set standards we just can't live up to. Despite all of this, by the way, irregardless, still not a word. Just saying. So, let us turn to John Evelyn. John kept notes about his life and the world around him from the age of 11, in 1630. He was the scion of a well-off family with 700 acres at Wooten in Surrey. He didn't record every day in his diary like Pepys, nor was he present in England throughout the civil wars all the time, because he stayed much in Europe until about 1652, going there and coming back sort of thing. He was a botanist of some fame to boot, and a staunch royalist. His return to England permanently in 1652 was actually one of those signs that the Commonwealth by then seemed to have finally ended the royalist cause and that the English would need to get used to being a republic. That, my friends, is what they call a plot spoiler. A spoiler of plots. Anywho, Evelyn's diary give insights into many famous public events. The execution of Charles I the death of Oliver Cromwell, the Great Fire of London, to name but a few. And his diaries also provide something of a counterpoise to the Puritan writings of people like Lucy Hutchinson, of whom we've heard of already, and you'll hear more of. In October 1640, Evelyn was in London, and he recorded this entry on the 30th. 
I should warn you that the piece also includes plot spoilers, though I guess the plot is pretty much in pieces anyway. But, you know, if you want to preserve the threads of mystery, turn away now. I went to the temple, it being Michaelmas term, and October the 30th I saw His Majesty, coming from his northern expedition, ride in pomp and a kind of ovation, with all the marks of a happy prince restored to the affections of the people, being conducted through London with a most splendid cavalcade. And on November following, the third, a day never to be mentioned without a curse, to the, that long, ungrateful, foolish and fatal parliament, the beginning of all sorrows for twenty years after, it is of that Parliament that we must speak now. It is known to history as the Long Parliament, and this is not that famous English use of irony. You can gather that it will not be over by Christmas. When he rolled into London, Charles had but a few days to put the washing in the laundry, dig himself out a new suit of clothes and prepare himself mentally for the challenges ahead. No one could doubt this was a session that would define his reign. There was no getting round it. Not even Charles could hope, as he clearly had in April, that he'd have a quick, clean fight, get a bunch of money in return for a pile of vague promises and a wayagu. There is a view, fiercely refuted by revisionists and second-wave revisionists, that Charles would never compromise, but actually we're going to see that the revisionists have a point. He could compromise, had to have his nose pressed to a grindstone for it to happen, but he did have it in him. Just like the Parliament representing the English these days, the Long Parliament was not just a matter for the English. Under the Treaty of Ripon, the Scots had demanded that after they had conducted their own negotiations with the King to resolve the issues between them, the resulting treaty must be ratified by the English Parliament. The practical consideration here, of course, was that the people with the biggest stick were the Scots. Their view would be bound to have weight, and certainly they had friends in the Junto. The king still had an army in York, but frankly, that had been weighed already and found wanting. The party of Scottish commissioners who arrived in London in November, just in time for Parliament, they included those commissioners who had negotiated at Ripon, including the architects of the Covenant, Henderson and Johnston of Warriston. Then there were representatives from each of the estates in Scotland, and along with them came four ministers. Watch those ministers! They are there for a reason, an evangelical one. See three below. Altogether then, I think there's about 15 of them. One of them, Robert Bailey, kept a diary, so we get a lot of view of how things went. And so there's a mix amongst these commissioners, lairds, lawyers, burgesses, peers. This is a symbol of one of the great achievements of the Scottish Revolution. From a country previously dominated politically by the great magnates, lairds and burgesses were now every bit as important in driving the bus. There will be a reckoning for that come 1660, but that's getting ahead of ourselves. And let's enjoy it while it lasts. Anyway, the Scots were popular. Charles no doubt hoped they'd be jeered in the streets as rebels and welcomed with a flurry of vegetables that had passed their sell-by date. But that didn't happen. They arrived to a great fanfare and were welcomed with open arms, or at least welcomed by the Puritans. 
Cheering crowds pressed around their cavalcade. Parliament assigned a church for their special use and Londoners thronged in their enthusiasm to hear the Scottish preachers doing their thing and in return received a healthy dose of dissing of the very idea of bishops. Yuck, boo, sucks. Now look, we'll come to the detailed aims of the Scottish commissioners in just a moment. This is, after all, the wars of the three kingdoms as well as the English Revolution, but three things to note is this, are these. Firstly, the existence of the Scottish army in the northeast at a price of 850 quid a day, which I think we can all agree was bargain basement and cheapest trips, not meant that Charles had to get an agreement for subsidies at this parliament. Every day, his treasury looked more and more rude and bare. And secondly, the Scots were assured of friends in the English parliament, for if the junto was to be the pen of change, the Scots were the sword. And thirdly, if there was one overriding aim for the Scots, it was security. The revolution of the Covenanters must be made irreversible. This would have consequences with a capital K, for just as Alfred believed true peace with Guthrum would come only when he and his people became Christian, so the Scots believed peace would only come with one true Presbyterian religion in both kingdoms. Well, all three, but let's start with England, eh? OK, so, as Charles was in York and travelling south, around the time he reached mm, the Watford Gap service station, the election to Parliament was being carried out. You know we talked about how many uncontested shoe-ins there were in English elections? Well, if 1640 had been record-breaking at 60 contests, 1640 take two was even more so. 80 contested elections, a quarter of MPs, had fought it out in front of their electorate. But also, generally even in constitutions where gentry or aldermen made selections, court candidates get a kicking. And the swingometer was going crazy. The court seems to have not tried as hard as it should anyway, but it backed 47 candidates, only 23 of whom were actually elected. And the whole election was accompanied by unease and a general atmosphere of unruliness. I mean, it's always important to keep these things in perspective. The rural parish of Swinkham, with its 100 people as church mice and 10 or so enormously wealthy ones, I doubt a leaf stirred there, a rabbit started, a vole scuttled for its nest. But in many places, there are riots about religion. Unruly people broke into a church in Reading and smashed the altar rails, and similar things happened in Ipswich and Sudbury and even Marlow. And no one revolts in Marlow anymore. The very idea... Things were very bad. But just a note about the oft-repeated Ooh, that Cromwell and his soldiers wrecking everything. <sniffs> Not really. Happens way before Cromwell gets anywhere near power. Ordinary people. The country, all over, smash stuff. Including images, stained glass windows and all. Spread the world. It's not all about Cromwell. And then, when a visitation of the High Commission rocked up at St Paul's Cathedral, they were followed around by a crowd. All of them quacking. Now, I'd hate you to think this is a normal way of expressing dissent in these era parts. I advise you not to do it in the pub if someone says prawn and cocktail crisps are the best. It just so happens that the bishop's chancellor happened to be called Dr Duck. When a commission was set up to try the rioters for their lack of rule, the jury refused to take any action. There was a general sense of lawlessness ahead of an expectation that things were going to happen. In the words of the Stranglers, had they been there, something better change. 
This is a chance for me to introduce you briefly to a character not much talked about. One of the frustrations of being a podcaster like me is the pain of not being able to really dig into the details of a period like proper historians who have spent years grubbling around in the records. I don't have the time, knowledge or skills. Which is why the academics on whose shoulders I stand are so fantastic. <laughs> anyway, before I get all emotional, there are many diaries that survive, personal recollections, and I thought it would be important to share the odd one from time to time. And I'm aware that the general history of the Civil Wars is very Whiggish, generally. You know, the rise of democracy and all that. Well, there are other points of view, one being, with which I have much sympathy, that these civil wars are nothing but a tragedy of self-mutilation which the British will try hard to avoid for the rest of their history, and maybe that's the main outcome of it all. The English will never want to go through all that again. Anyway, so let me introduce you to Henry Slingsby. He comes from a gentry family from Knaresborough in Yorkshire, a reasonably grand one. The family had brought one of James's newfangled baronetses. He was married to Francis Vavasour. He will be a royalist, and all through the Civil War a royalist, just so you know his bias. He wrote in his diary at this time, reflecting on the mood of the people. Common people were bound to think themselves loose and absolved from all government, when they should see that which they so much venerated, so easily subverted. We'll come back to Henry a little later, but then even Henry at this point understood that people wanted change and were outraged. More solidly then, 18 counties submitted formal petitions of grievances for their newly elected MPs to take with them to Parliament. In elections at this time, contested or otherwise, it was the custom, as now, for your successful candidate to make a speech on the hustings and elections were often attended by an awful lot of people in the constituency, whether they had the vote or not. Back then, though, the people then had a right of reply to tell their representative what they expected of them. So, the number of petitions is just the tip of the lettuce. So this happened in Dorset, for example, at the elections, where local lord and arch-royalist Digby complained there of the regular and tumultuous assemblies of the people. This is the sort of thing you would know if you were a History of England member, by the way, and were currently listening to the Party, Parliament and Politics series, having signed up at thehistoryofengland.co.uk, just so you know. By and large, then, the complaints at all of these elections and hustings and petitions were the same. Arminianism, taxes like ship money, monopolies. So as November approached, London was humming for all sorts of reasons. There was a trade slump going on. People were out of work as the Thirty Years' War played havoc with industries such as textiles. Coal coming out of Newcastle was, surprise, surprise, getting expensive. The weather was getting colder and there was plague. Plague stalking the city. It would claim the life of a very influential politician before too long as I touch one finger to one solitary nostril. Meanwhile, over 500 MPs had taken lodgings as good as they could find in the city and were seeking each other out, catching up on the goss who were saying what and why, what was going to happen. Taverns and alehouses were packed out into the fury of James I's shades. There was no doubt much backy being smoked. Every thoroughfare was clogged with extra traffic. The river buzzed with boats, the roads groaned with coaches. Preachers were pumping out sermons ten to the dozen, proclaiming or condemning this or condemning that. 
things, ladies and gentlemen, were cooking. Cooking on gas and expectations were high. We dream now of nothing more than a golden age, wrote one. That's all very well, but others looked towards Whitehall and the Tower, where new artillery was being installed, and to Deptford, where naval guns were being tested. The thud and boom of distant guns spoke of a future less than golden, more red. Whitehall and the area around where the Houses of Parliament would meet were crammed, as they always were during Parliaments. I mean, now, of course, we are used to solemn, serious politicians talking in hushed tones with great wisdom and steady words about the serious matters of the nation. I am sure you recognise the picture I'm painting. Back then, it was not like that. Around Westminster Hall, there were masses of people milling around. No one was excluded. Wiltshire magnate John Danvers complained of an inundation of beggars. Well, one person was actually stopped when he asked for his MP, but he was riding a horse dressed in a full suit of armour and carrying an arrow, so it was thought reasonable to ask him to explain himself before he went in. But he was an exception. The doors of the chamber were closed during debates, it has to be said, but you could mill around outside and hear what was going on anyway and what was being debated, and people would duly report back on what was being said. Also, I understand there were four well-known drinking holes within the precincts of Westminster Palace. Alongside the Exchequer buildings were two taverns called Hell and Paradise. In 1648, when Pride's purge removed royalist sympathisers, they held them in one of the taverns for the night. And Henry Martin quipped that it was quite right that the friends of the king should go to hell. Arf, and I say again, arf. Who says revolutionaries have no sense of humour? Pepys would visit hell in 1660, but then Pepys was like that. And he'd also drink at two more establishments in Westminster. Heaven, so-called because it was on an upper story in the angle made by the Court of Wards and the Court of Requests and another called Purgatory on the east side of New Palace Yard. It all seems a bit irreverent for such a religious age to me. Anyway, if you want to see where all these things are, and where MPs and Lords go at various times, and see some engravings of the environment of the time, I have lovingly prepared a few for you. Hi thee to the history of uk again. It really is a paradise of goodies, that place, isn't it? You can download a map of Whitehall Palace, Stick it to the back of your iron or the inside of your glasses or on the windscreen of your car so you can see where people are when they say what as you listen. Anyway, away from all the hustle and bustle, the hawkers and huxers, the strawmen and lobbyists, priests and printers, behind closed doors, conversations were happening about secret plans and clever tricks. Over time, royalist factions and parties will emerge in 1641 on a scale from those prioritising peace to the out-and-out cavaliers, swordsmen, as it were. But at this early stage, two of Charles's advisers were particularly influential. There was the firebrand, Strafford, and then there was the more politique and emollient Marquis of Hamilton. As these two men led the charge in discussing tactics with their prince, it is worth noting that, powerless as Charles might have seemed at this point, he had one very powerful asset. Unlike everyone else in Parliament and beyond, the King could not be removed. At no point did the thinking of the Junto and the most firebrandy of reformers in 1641 consider tactics on any other basis. The King 
could not be removed. Any agreement must be made with his approval. He effectively held a veto. Even with this in mind, Charles had three broad options. He could roll over and concede his way out. There were many of his more moderate councillors for whom this was the burden of their advice. Hamilton was one of them. But for the moment, that wasn't Charles's gig. He could try to divide and rule, build a party within Parliament. After all, he tried that in Scotland under Hamilton, and it had seen for a little while to have some potential. And Hamilton in particular was pivotal right now. He was facing both the English Parliament and leading negotiations with the Scots. But while all the others were wringing their hands, Strafford had much more aggressive ideas. His plan was for Charles to visit the Tower and take command of the garrison. Meanwhile, round up the leaders of the Junto, charge them with treason on the basis they'd been talking to the Scots. Which might well work, and might well stick. For Pym, and the Junto therefore, the threat for Strafford. I think this is the critical thing to burn on your heart or brain, or wherever you burn things, hanky, maybe. Strafford was a threat. The Scots knew this, the Junto knew this, and they knew of Strafford's skill in managing the Dublin Parliament and his access to the King's other remaining sword, the Army of Ireland. They feared Strafford as much as the King. Any agreement must be made in such a way as to make revenge impossible. It is squeaky bum time. Hold up, what was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Okay, enough messing about scene setting and all of that. Get on with it, man. The big day arrived, 3rd of November, 1640. The opening of Parliament was normally a chance for a bit of a pageant. Glory of kingship and all that sort of thing. This time, there seemed to be none of that. Rather than a grand cavalcade through the streets, Charles took a gilded royal barge and landed at the back door through the gardens. In his opening speech to both houses, Charles served up the standard dish, really. Money was needed to fight his just wars, and quickly. And of course he'd then address their grievances. A couple of things did not pass notice about the speech. Firstly, he rather rudely called the Scots rebels. I say rather rudely, although I suppose not inaccurately, but as it happens, this didn't go down well with either MPs or the Privy Council. So rather embarrassingly, on the 5th of November, he returned to the laws to say, sorry... Sorry about that. Of course, they're my subjects too. A piece of work that had him giving all encouragement then to Strafford to develop his attack plans immediately. The other thing was that he didn't mention religion. I think it very likely Charles hoped to duck the whole subject, but if so, it was a forlorn hope. On the 7th of November, the real speeches got underway, and it was John Pym, predictably, who made the central speech which set the agenda now, Pym was not a charismatic speaker. He hated interruptions, banter, one-liners, witty repartee, and messing with the audience. There was none of that. But he was thorough and some. He was forensic and crystal clear in laying out an agenda, and he had a talent for reflecting the mood of the House. He was addressing a range of groups in the Commons. At one end, 
there were the loyal members and office holders. But as we have already said, there were unusually few of these, maybe only 25 or so. Much more numerous were folks like Henry Slingsby. They had great expectations that their king would of course deliver just redress for grievances. Despite their loyalty to the king, MPs like Slingsby very much recognised that there were grievances which needed to be addressed. So there was remarkable unanimity in the House that these were taxes, a way to prevent the king dissolving Parliament, reform of High Commission and Star Chamber, and even the performance of bishops. Slingsby would continue to favour the Elizabethan Church and therefore the central role of bishops, but like many, he objected to many aspects of Arminianism. Though not all of them, he rather liked the ceremony stuff. Interestingly, he recognised the reality of the political situation, writing that They fear not the dissolving of Parliament, for the Scots are at Newcastle with an army. Pym and the Junto had what they wanted from the short Parliament, but then there's a deal of irritation from Slingsby at the need to satisfy the Scottish demands. He wrote, We treated of the demands of the Scots, our own business which concerned ourselves and our country, were neglected. So, there are royalists, prepared and recognising the need to raise money to pay the Scots and willing to help the king, but even they expected reform. Then Richard Baxter, a Puritan lecturer and a friend of Pym, described the two groups supporting Pym's agenda. One party made no great matter of these alterations of the church, but they said that if Parliament was once down and our property gone and arbitrary government set up and law subjected to the prince's will, we would then all be slaves. These the people called good commonwealth men. The other sort were more religious men, who were also sensible of these things, but were much more sensible of the interests of religion. The Junto, Hamden, St. John, Strode, Hollis, along with the Peers, Bedford, Essex, Warwick, et al., had hammered out the grievances that Pym now introduced, and met with wide acceptance in the House. They were to reverse the Church's perceived drift to popery, to roll back arbitrary government in the form of equity courts, illegal taxes, the hated ship money, the end of truncated parliaments, the fear and need to restrict the king's control of the military because of what he might do with the military, and of course, then to deal with the king's money needs. Even the Junto recognised that if ship money was deleted, the king needed some other way to pay the bills. How they achieved all this was sadly still to be decided. The Junto had no programme, they knew what they didn't like, but they didn't really know what they were going to do about it, though a programme would quickly emerge. But before any of this could happen, there were wrongs to put right, immediate wrongs, people persecuted who must be unpersecuted. So on the 7th of November, Parliament released William Prynne and his fellow sufferers Bastwick and Burton. Three weeks later, they would arrive in London, and London would go potty with delight. The church bells were rung, there were 2,000 people on horseback, innumerable others on foot cramming the streets, crying out, God be thanked for your return, and all that sort of thing. It was a massive symbol that the mood had shifted, that change was possible, even inevitable. On the fourth day of business, the MP for Cambridge stood up to present a petition for the release of another victim of Star Chamber, John Lilburn. There is a famous description of the man that stood to speak for Lilburn by a royalist MP called Philip Warwick. I came into the house well clad and perceived a gentleman speaking, 
whom I knew not, ordinarily apparelled, for it was a plain cloth suit, which seemed to have been made by an ill country tailor. His linen was plain and not very clean, and I remember a speck or two of blood upon his little band at his throat. His hat was without a hat-band, his stature was of good size, his sword stuck close to his side, his countenance swollen and reddish, his voice harsh and untunable, and his eloquence full of fervour. Warwick went on to remark that the speaker was very much hearkened to, and in another speech it was said he dropped tears down with his words. This man was, of course, Oliver Cromwell. Hutton's view was that Cromwell's speaking style in the house was very much like that of a Puritan speaker, full of emotion, certainty and passion. Cromwell and Lilburn will have a history and will come eventually into conflict, but for many years they will be of similar minds, until Lilburn goes further than the socially conservative Cromwell was prepared to follow. But there's no reason to suppose Cromwell ever regretted speaking for Lilburn now, for he had no doubt that Lilburn was a victim of a great injustice, and that injustice must be put right. Now, Parliament at this time, let it be remembered, was a body with the power to offer counsel to the king, but not with any executive powers whatsoever. So, much of the time of the Parliament was spent commissioning inquiries from all over the country to find out what people thought, and then to present that to the king and his ministers. Nonetheless, a programme now emerged. First was to scotch the snake that threatened to strike them down. On the 11th of November, they were resolved to strike immediately. They would launch impeachment proceedings against Strafford. The procedure involved presenting charges in the Commons, which, if passed, would then be tried in the Lords. As Pym waited for his chance, business dragged. There were worrying reports of continued arming of the Tower. There were accusations being made against the Minister Winterbank. News came to Pym that Strafford had left the House of Lords to go to the palace to consult with Charles. Immediately, of course, there was panic. What tactics were they cooking up? Would they already bring charges of treason against the Junto before they could impeach Strafford? Pym slipped from the chamber and spoke to Warwick and Brooke and the others to try and keep the Lords talking in session until they heard back from the Commons so that the Lords couldn't listen to an appeal from Strafford. Timing was essential. They had to strike first before Strafford sprung his plans. Back in the Commons, finally a committee was appointed to consider business to be presented to the Lords. Here was Pym's chance at last, to get an impeachment of Strafford onto the agenda of the House. Into committee they went, there to argue what the priorities for business were. Was dealing with Strafford even one of those? If it was, should they push for impeachment? Or would that bring royal retribution onto their necks? Back and forth went the debate as the day wore on, until eventually they returned to the House. They were ready to put forward proposals for business for consideration by the Commons. In front of the full House, the committee declared their view that the House of Commons should immediately debate whether or not to accuse Strafford of treason, and crucially, to debate whether to ask the Lords to order Strafford detained until a formal case could be prepared of treason. Why was detention crucial? If Strafford was not immediately detained, he would remain free to accuse the Junto of treason and strike them down. So there it was. The proposal was put to the House and debated, and then came the vote. The acclamation was so great, so loud, no division was needed. The House was of one mind. 
Yes, Strafford was the architect of the evil advice that had led their good and noble king astray. It was he that was the viper. As the shadows lengthened, Pym led a delegation immediately out from St Stephen's Church across the Palace of Westminster in the gathering dark to the White Chamber and the House of Lords. Warwick and Brooke had kept the Lords in session. But the Lords would be nothing like as easy a challenge as the Commons. They knew the King's love for his minister. Nor was it just a question of whether the Lords should accept there was a chance to answer would they go along with the idea that he should be detained immediately, even before formal charges had been prepared? As the Lords started to debate the Commons proposal, brought to them by John Pym, there was a moment of drama. Strafford at that very moment returned from the King's side to enter the chamber to take his seat. He was met with cries of, Withdraw! Withdraw! In anger and frustration, Strafford was forced to agree. He withdrew outside the locked doors of the house, left to wait and pace outside, while inside, the debate wore on. Eventually all was finished. A decision had been taken. Strafford was recalled. As he entered the Lords, he was ordered by the Speaker of the House to kneel. As he pulled himself to his knees in front of his peers, humiliated, the King's favoured adviser was informed of the decision of the House. He was to be removed from his seat immediately and taken into custody. On the 25th, Strafford would be taken to the Tower through the streets of London while ecstatic London crowds gathered to jeer him, to throw insults at a man described to them as full of cruelty and blood. The reformers had overcome their first challenge and lived to fight on. Charles's hopes had been frustrated again. He'd have to look now for new councils once more to rethink his approach and his course. That is mainly it for this week, folks, although I have a sort of codicil. It is about one specific Member of Parliament, the Member for Cambridge, Oliver Cromwell. So Oliver gives me a narrative challenge I'm going to share with you. I am aware that the interest in Cromwell is high, with opinions running from evil to hero, although somewhat usefully, an American listener the other day reminded me that many of his fellows would not know him at all, and others might be simply comparing him with George Washington, which I hadn't actually imagined, but there you go. My assumption was that the dominant narrative in the US was the Catholic-Irish-American angle, and therefore the man is condemned for English and Scottish, well, British policy in Ireland in the 1650s. In the UK, of course, there is a wide range of views. Anyway, a range of opinions, and so I feel honour-bound to make sure we cover his career and weave it in from the start. There's no denying that he's one of England's most important statesmen, and after all, a man who was a simple Huntingdon farmer rising to be head of state has got to be extraordinary, whether you love him or hate him. But the trouble is that we all do this. We focus way too much on Oliver Cromwell. So I command you, in the words of the Who, don't be fooled again. Oliver Cromwell was not responsible for the smashing of every single piece of beautiful church ornamentation from here to eternity. He did not cancel Christmas. Cromwell did not execute the king, the Commonwealth did. But most of all, he was not even a particularly influential mover in the English state until, I don't know, 1648. He was not commander of the army until 1650. He was not the prime mover in English politics until maybe the 1648, 1649 and 1650s. So, my way out of this is that for the first few months of Parliament, year maybe, I'm not going to mention Oliver again, otherwise it'll be Oliver this and Oliver that, as I try to weave him in, and you'll get a skewed view of his importance. So, 
I'll talk about Oliver and Parliament here for a while and his style so that you have an idea and then leave him for a bit. He is essentially just another MP, though an active and well-regarded one. So, Cromwell's actions reflect the style of dress that Warwick had noted earlier in the episode. A royalist soldier at Basinghouse, much later, 1645, would write of him, His figure did in no way promise what he performed. He was personable but not handsome. Nor did he look great or bold. He was plain in his apparel, and rather affected a negligence than a gentle garb. Gentle in this context meaning posh, noble, exp- expensive. He looks like an ordinary bloke, sort of thing. One of the people didn't give himself airs or think himself out of the ordinary. This is very much confirmed by what William Waller, the parliamentary commander initially known as William the Conqueror, thought. He reflected much later that Cromwell had never shown extraordinary parts, nor do I think he did himself believe that he had them. For although he was blunt, he did not bear himself with pride or disdain. So through the story, for many years, he was a hard-working and committed MP with an unpretentious though passionate style and a fervent belief in divine providence, and that gave him force. We'd also prove, of course, to be a talented military leader, which we'll hear about. He was involved in the genesis of a number of bills in 1641, always working with others. Reform of the church was always his primary concern. He was involved in launching actions against individual Laudians, such as being part of the committee that drew up charges against Archbishop Wren, although that foundered. He sat on the House's Committee of Religion with the likes of Hamden and one MP called Hamden Cromwell's bosom friend. He was part of 21 committees in the 12 months to the autumn of 1641. So he was active and he moved nine items in debate. By point of comparison, by the way, the majority of members never spoke at all. Our friend Henry Slingsby certainly never did, and indeed almost nothing of the 1641 Parliament even makes it into Slingsby's diaries. He was much more concerned about family matters. Cromwell produced a draft bill for the abolition of bishops with Harry Vane Jr. and produced a successful proposal to allow preachers to operate on weekdays. Supporting lecturers and preachers was always a passion for Cromwell. He was also involved in secular projects, such as we'll hear next time, seconding Strode's proposal for lords to compel regular parliaments and the protestation oath. And finally, he pursued local interests, supporting complaints and grievances from locals about fen drainage projects, for example. In some of these, he ran in opposition to members of the Junto. One of those I've not mentioned yet was Edward Lord Mandeville, who I am tempted very much to call Manchester from the start for the Earl of Manchester he will become. And will have a super famous quote to deliver. One of the questions was in this period about whether Cromwell was part of the Junto or not. He was certainly a reformer, and oftentimes his views ran together with the Junto, and he had family connections with Hamden and Oliver Sinjin. But he appears to have ploughed his own furrow, essentially, and been prepared to act in opposition to them on individual matters when he felt moved to do so. He was his own man. He had a little concern for the privileges of rank if he saw an injustice, albeit he would prove more socially conservative than folks like Lilburn in the future. So, he successfully accused Sir James Tynes, for example, of abusing parliamentary privilege to try and acquire some land tends to look like something of a maverick, moved by his own interest and enthusiasms. He's notably lacking of any leadership role in the struggle with Strafford. He was clearly valued as an active and effective Member of Parliament and well-known there, 
and acquired a reputation as a formidable advocate or a formidable opponent. So we'll leave him there for a while. OK, that is finally it for this week. Next week, we'll talk about a developing programme of reform, which looks as though it could have a good chance of leading to an amicable and lasting peace with no need for the death of hundreds of thousands of people. Until then, thank you kindly for listening. I am most grateful. Thanks for all your comments and reviews and all that sort of thing. Good luck and have a great week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.